You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is October 13th, 2022 at 7.35 p.m. And I think it's still Pacific Daylight Time um, for another couple of weeks. And uh, we've been talking about view the last few uh, um, evenings, and um, I thought I would continue with that. I I still uh, wanted to get to the preoccupied view, which we, we haven't quite uh, grabbed yet. And I think it's an, an, an interesting uh, uh, correlation to also then talk about the non-mentalizing modes uh, that Peter Fonicky and Anthony Bateman uh, uh, developed. Um, mentalizing, of course, is the ability to track what's happening. Uh, really, what I think about it is uh, you have the capacity to sense something, the object that can be sensed, and when there's contact, consciousness of the sensing experience arises, but it's unfixated, undifferentiated. It's just pure sensing. It's evaluated uh, unconsciously, really, for processing speed. Does it need urgent attention? Does it not matter if we get to it? Uh, it's pleasant. Is there time to experience something pleasant? Uh, then it's uh, really processed in that order. Urgent, pleasant, uh, doesn't matter. And then it's compared to the perceptual database to see if there's an entry that's close enough to uh, the sensing experience. And then if there is, then the meaning of that conditioned response uh, uh, forms uh, conceptual reality with all of those meanings uh, tied to it. And if there isn't an entry that's close enough, then the imagination fills that in by creating a new uh, stream, a new thread of meaning. so we're relational. Um, the human body is designed to live in complex social networks, and it has a pain response if we are not connected socially. Uh, we have these bundles of nerves uh, in our brain that only social animals seem to have, social mammals. And so there's an actual physical structure around this that is uh, imploring us to, to live. If you um, Think of Darwinism and that the distortion that's very uh, um, common in the West, which is survival of the fittest. What you really have, of course, is survival of the collaborators. Uh, and they're the ones who really uh, 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 succeed in the world that we have. Um, and so all of that is just built into this biology of ours. Um, because we learn so much uh, uh, in the uh, relationship uh, experience, the relationship crucible, uh, when we are we're born into f- different family systems, we essentially learn the family system and how uh, that uh, how that uh, particular group um, negotiates the world. Um, we are born 
pretty helpless, uh, entirely dependent on who comes to take care of us. And really, we begin to develop these working models of our sense of self and the, the sense of the world that uh, we can expect. Uh, it comes from the uh, activity of being mirrored in the dyadic relationship with our early caregivers, if, of course, you have that. So you present yourself to the world, and if you have a sensitive, a sensitive enough caregiver, they take that presentation in, they interpret it, they mirror it back to you, and then uh, to complete the cycle of that uh, communication, they respond to the request that you're making. They take care of you. And if they're sensitive enough and responsive enough, then you find that you're taken care of enough. And kids who are taken care of good enough have a tendency of not worrying about whether that care will come or not. We call that a sense of security that you as an infant can express what you need without even really knowing what that is. And if you have a sensitive enough caregiver, they come, they respond to you, they mirror back to you the request to validate the communication, and then they take care of you in a way that's good enough. 30% of the time or more. So an astonishingly low bar. Um, and, uh, people who grow up to be dismissing, which we talked about, have a tendency uh, in childhood to be uh, neglected so that there isn't that uh, sensitive exchange. The nurturance is uh, um, um, not really there, but the sustenance is. So the food, the clothing, and the shelter, what's necessary for them to survive and grow into an adult is there. But the interest and the encouragement to uh, touch into what's uh, essential in uh, the experience of you is not valued. But this is a little bit different in people who grow up to be preoccupied. What's, what happens to uh, preoccupied uh, kids is that the care is really uh, uh, um, inconsistent. Sometimes the the sensitive enough care is there, sometimes the, that care is absent, and oftentimes what happens is there's an misattunement between the caregiver and the infant so that the caregiver uh, misinterprets or misunderstands what uh, the child needs. Uh, and this uh, doesn't result in security, actually. It results in a, a focus of the uh, preoccupied child on the parent um, and often it results in the child beginning to attempt to be what the the parents misattunement represents to them so that they can be taken care of uh, the reason that i started talking about this in relationship to the non-mentalizing modes is that one of the non-mentalizing modes is called pretend mode and in pretend mode, you really uh, uh, tune into the experience of the other person and then uh, intuit what you think they want you to be, who they want you to be, 
uh, and then you become that person in order to get care. And uh, with an inconsistent caregiver who is misattuning to you, uh, rather than trying to get them to uh, attune, in some sense, what you do is try to adjust yourself to where they're focusing, what they're interested in. Christian. George, could you describe a little bit about the parental mind states that lead to preoccupation in the child? So I've heard that like being distracted during care is is one of them, but it seems like that wouldn't be enough. And I guess I'm wondering, like, I guess preoccupied uh, attachment styles get passed down, but are uh, is it just preoccupied parents that are resulting in preoccupied children? Or is it also, I could imagine, like sort of dissociated, somewhat dissociated activities or like more um, disorganized parents? Um, I don't know. I asked a lot of questions, but can you just talk about the parental mind states that that, that are involved in caring for a child that leads to the preoccupied uh, attachment? Well, um, the preoccupation... Uh, of the parent is what the child learns. So uh, statistically, uh, Mary Ainsworth, uh, who was the one of the original researchers in the in-home studies found that uh, you have an 85% chance of learning the attachment strategy that your primary caregiver has. So that really what we're talking about is a child who has a pretty clean slate in terms of what they know about a self and world learning from somebody the, the way that that adult orientates themselves to the world. So you learn as those each of those windows of opportunity open in your development, the strategy that your caregiver is using, because that's the strategy that they have to teach you. Uh, and so um, but the, the inability of a preoccupied person to consistently pay attention is, I think, one of the things that makes them so jumpy. Plus, they're going to be preoccupied with their attachment uh, figure, uh, an adult attachment figure usually. So uh, if they're not uh, preoccupied with the child, uh, then they're preoccupied with someone else and their mind is constantly skipping. Uh, because preoccupied people uh, use the, uh, they get into a switch where the empathetic experience of their attachment figure uh, uh, becomes the dominant experience of, for them emotionally and that their own experience becomes secondary. They need actual proximity to the, the person that they're interested in. Uh, so that if it's a, a couple situation and the the parent is preoccupied with their their partner their mind is constantly going to be away from the experience of the child is that making sense so if the the caregiver makes the child uh, the uh, object of their attention um, then uh, you're going to find some kind of uh, intrusion or role reversing that happens because the uh, the parent uh, um, 
needing the uh, the the care of the child in the same way that they might need the care of an adult partner. Is that helping? Yeah, and I I guess I I assume that the parents' misattunement of the child partially stems from them not actually being able to go back to their own like mind state and and their own feelings so that they can see the child's but they can't properly mirror because they don't go back to their own well they're not they're not centered in their own experience they're they're preoccupied with the experience of someone else um they don't right they don't tend to regulate their own experience they tend to regulate the experience of someone else um, an infant might then uh, empathetically touch into the experience of their caregiver who's preoccupied and dysregulated but not actually uh, aware of the dysregulation because their focus is somewhere else so the child has a dysregulating experience um, the uh, preoccupied mind is always scanning the environment it's so that to stay continuously attuned in a way to a child that would be uh, uh, reassuring and feel reliable to the child doesn't really happen. Um, and then also, uh, the uh, they don't tend uh, preoccupied people have a hard time presenting themselves authentically, um, and so it's it becomes very difficult for a child, particularly as they get older, to really understand what's happening. With, uh, with their parent figure, because the parent figure is not relating that to the child authentically. Um, so you might notice uh, inconsistencies in, in the way that uh, parents behave. They're, the uh, public appearance that's demanded of the child is very different than the, the private experience that the child has. The, the sense of helplessness that the the uh, uh, preoccupied parent uh, presents to the child. Uh, there, there is a, a a breaking off point. Really, children under the age of six don't really have the capacity to provide much in the way of care to uh, adults. But as soon as they hit uh, six or so, they do have uh, uh, the the cognitive capacity to mimic those roles better, and so you often see in children of uh, preoccupied parents at around six years old they become controlling uh, and demanding in a way that it, it isn't present in earlier kids um, but they also uh, tend to adopt that uh, inauthentic expression they're constantly trying to be the the person that uh, the caregiver is interested in so that they can get the attention of the caregiver. Is that making sense? And in the process of that, they lose track of their own um, beingness. Uh, and that's the piece that becomes difficult to overcome. Now, if they're successful at that, and one of the things that happens to some preoccupied people is that they get so good at pretending and so good at presenting themselves as what uh, the caregiver wants that they come into a very fixed 
view or fixed belief that the way that you get things in the world is by pretending. And it's very hard to convince them that actually that isn't the best way to get things, that uh, being authentic is a more efficient means of, of doing that. Uh, one of the, the, the great persuasions in moving from a preoccupied attachment strategy into an earned secure attachment strategy is giving up on pretend mode um, because you uh, recognize that it, it doesn't actually work better. But uh, I know from my side of things where I work with people that uh, when you have the experience of a lifetime of only getting things from being in pretend mode, it's very hard uh, to change your mind about that. And because you've never actually authentically revealed yourself, uh, the idea of revealing yourself becomes quite frightening. So uh, it's it can be quite intractable in that way. Is that making sense about? So you have an inconsistent uh, a response from a caregiver, you have a misattuned response from a caregiver, and you keep trying to mold yourself into a person that will be interesting to your caregiver and that your caregiver will uh, want to take care of. Um, most of the time, uh, the strategy that uh, adult preoccupied people use in the, on the organized end of things is um, helplessness as a way of getting connection, getting proximity. And so you begin to develop a sense of constantly scanning the environment for problems that you can then use to present uh, as a demand uh, for somebody to help you. Uh, you do that, of course, because uh, not because you want the problem solved, but because you want the proximity of the person who's helping you solve the problem. Um, so another reason why uh, uh, preoccupied uh, caregivers are inattentive to their children is because they're scanning the environment for for problems that they can use in the, the strategy that they have for connection. And so in infancy and childhood, you begin to learn that I need to have a problem in order to get connected to. And so the child learns helplessness as a way of connecting, of, of, as a way of meeting their needs for proximity and soothing. Um, and in the, that family system, because the caregiver is not actually helpless, they're presenting themselves as helpless, the child also learns that. that it's the presentation that gets the, the response that you want. Um, and so you become good at presenting problems. In, if you remember the uh, foundations of secure attachment, the, uh, there's a sense of uh, safety, which comes from reliable protective care. There's a sense of attunement that uh, you can get the attention of your caregiver when you need to, and you can have as much of that as, that you, as you need. And that because you feel safe, you can present yourself authentically. 
And because you do, you feel a sense of being seen and a sense of being known. Um, but this is something that uh, preoccupied kids don't really have that sense of safety. There, there's a fearfulness at the core of, of preoccupation. Um, because you don't present yourself authentically, uh, there's always a fearfulness that you could be discovered. And if you're discovered, you could be abandoned. So you don't get that reassurance of being completely open and, and a sense of being seen and being safe that relaxes that uh, tendency. Um, one of the things that happens to uh, preoccupied adults, certainly, is that they don't get emotionally regulated reliably by uh, their uh, attachment partners. Uh, and they also don't then provide, because they don't really know how to do it, uh, a consistent emotional regulation, regulating environment for their children. And so their children uh, don't learn to adequately uh, regulate themselves. Uh, they become dependent on the caregiver or another person to regulate them. This completely constricts their capacity to explore because they can't regulate themselves while they're exploring. Is that making sense? And then the fourth one uh, that's so important is uh, an expressed uh, delight that the caregiver has for uh, their children. So that the child's expectation, no matter what happens, is that uh, their caregiver has the capacity to delight in their beingness in just who they are. And this is uh, one of the great deficits of uh, preoccupied people. They don't really have much sense of being delighted in because they always had to present a problem in order to get attention. Um, as adults, of course, if your main means of getting connection and attention is um, by presenting a problem, uh, people are not delighted to see you. When you figure out that actually, if I can present a problem that has no solution, then the need for proximity will never end. And so I can have all of the proximity that I want. People really become uh, um, uh, unhappy about that. People don't like to be presented with unsolvable problems and a moral demand that you solve it. It makes them feel helpless. We don't like, uh, generally, we don't like the sense of feeling helpless. We like to have a sense of being capable. And so you'll notice that uh, because of that absence of delight, which is one of the central currencies of secure functioning relationships, secure people have a hard time being in relationship to a preoccupied person. The pretend mode, something happens uh, if you're not so far down the rabbit hole where you don't um, <clears throat> no longer know what's, what your authentic response is. What arises is your authentic response to the conditions of the present moment. Uh, and then uh, if that increases the abandonment here, that, that the idea is that if you were to express that, the, um, that you would be, you risk abandonment, then the inauthentic expression arises in the mind. 
if you push into that, it immediately relieves the abandonment terror, but uh, you've not expressed yourself authentically. So down the line, you're a little bit angry about that. You don't ask authentically for what you need. You don't present yourself authentically. You don't feel seen. You don't feel safe. And so you tend to get angry about that. If you do push into the authentic response, the abandonment terror intensifies, and then you're sideswiped by a wave of uh, terrible sadness. And the, the sadness that's related to preoccupation as you begin to come out of it is that over and over again, you were the one actually who abandoned yourself. You were the one who didn't ask for what you really needed. So you never, you don't really ever know whether you could have gotten it or not because you don't actually go for it in a way. And that that's the origin of the, the terrible sadness for preoccupied people. So the idea here is to begin to mentalize in a way that you can see these things happening, that you can see what your authentic response to the present moment is, and that you can push into it, even though it, it creates the experience of abandonment here, that you can uh, develop the skills to regulate that experience enough that you can tolerate making an authentic expression and that you can ride out the the sadness that follows and uh, come into a sense of security over and over again. Uh, each time you do it, of course, the intensity of the abandonment terror and the intensity of the, the sadness uh, minimize until it's not actually a big deal to be authentic. But you do have to reclaim each piece of your authenticity. It's not a global shift. Is that making sense? Um, but part of it is a decision, really a conscious choice to begin to give up uh, on uh, pretending and to actually make a risk of expressing yourself authentically. Christian. George, do you think of the there being an actual, like a sensible order to work on uh, the five conditions of secure attachment with someone who's preoccupied? Um, well, you probably, it's fine to develop them in the, in the order that uh, they're set up, looking for security first, sense of safety. The sense of safety comes from actually expressing yourself authentically, ironically, maybe. Let's just say it, it's ironic. Uh, you're pretending because you think that's the thing that's going to preserve the relationship, but that, that's actually the thing that causes the anxiety about whether the relationship is reliable. So you need to change your mind about that. Um, I find that you, you actually have to hold, uh, uh, you have to make a conscious choice to begin to present yourself authentically. Because if you don't, the, the, the mind is, is easily persuades itself that the right inauthenticity is what's going to work. All right, you caught me there. What do you mean by authenticity? Okay, I'll be that now. Um, who do you want me to be? I'll be anything. What do you want me to do? I'll do anything. 
is that is the voice of inauthenticity. Um, and you know, really, what we're talking about is not that you pull up the scroll of every vile thing you've ever done and get them to initial next to each entry so that the, that it's clear that they know that about you and they won't abandon you because of it. What it is is that you can present to them a, a complete uh, and accurate representation of what your experience of the present moment is. You don't have to go through the litany. You just have to be able to say what's happening for you now in this moment. And of course, uh, intimacy is developed. So uh, you need to communicate it in, in, in uh, a way that's appropriate to the, the agreement of the relationship that you have at the moment that you're doing it. Is that making sense? A lot of times with, with uh, preoccupation, you want to, you want to just sort of do a data dump of uh, every problem that you can foresee happening in the relationship so that you can regulate the anxiety of being abandoned. And actually, what you want to do is uh, see the other person and see the agreement of the relationship that you have and communicate in a way that's uh, in agreement with that. That that would be what we would call collaborating. That you recognize what the... the um, agreement is, you may have had an experience of feeling vulnerable or feeling a kind of emotional hangover from uh, being too intimate too quickly in a relationship. So you want to really be able to regulate that exchange so that it, it matches the agreement. And the description that you give of the present moment is in the context of that agreement. Is that making sense? And then also, if you can't do it, which is often what happens at the beginning of this process, that as soon as you recognize you haven't done it, you correct it. Um, Stan Hacken calls, says that there's a three-minute rule in an intimate relationship. You can say something, and if you take it back within three minutes, it's fairly uh, negotiable. And if you wait longer than that, it gets harder and harder the longer the time passes because the, the response keeps getting, uh, and the other person keeps developing. <clears throat> the reason that preoccupation is harder to address than uh, somebody who has a dismissing strategy is that dismissing people already know how to explore. And so really the adjustment is simply into exploring things that have uh, intrinsic meaning rather than exploring in a way that you're able to procure supplies to transact the things that you need. But preoccupied people uh, often have a limited capacity to explore. And so in addition to having to learn security, uh, in addition to having to present yourself authentically, you have to figure out how to explore in the first place. Uh, and th then you have to do that before you can then begin to really orient your exploration toward things that are meaningful. And so there's a lot of risk in that, a lot of risk in learning to explore that uh, dismissing or secure people don't have. Keith? George, could you, could you say more about the, the primacy of exploration 
between um, dismissing and preoccupied people. And I think what I'm kind of trying to get at is why, why it's easier for dismissing people to not, not, not to explore, but to, to move towards security um, because of that capacity. Um, Dismissing uh, the cause of dismissing attachment strategy is neglect, profound neglect. But one of the things that happens with that neglect is that uh, the caregivers don't interfere with the child's exploration. So a child who's uh, neglected is then free to learn to explore uh, in a way that uh, children who grow up to be preoccupied are not allowed. Um, there's a role reversing sometimes, and so the, the uh, caregiver uh, requires proximity of the child in order to feel emotionally regulated. Uh, and so they inhibit the child's capacity to explore. They either do that by restraining the child or by being, um, we call it overprotected, overprotecting the child. They're too afraid that something will happen to the child, and so they restrict the child's capacity to explore because they need uh, the proximity of the child. So we talk about these three dimensions uh, uh, or these three domains of skills that you need in order to function securely. One is the uh, a good uh, attachment system, one is a good exploration system, and one is a good collaborative system. Secure people come out of childhood with all three of these developed, and then as you look at the other attachment strategies, uh, they're not so developed. Uh, dismissing people tend to suppress their attachment system, so that's something that needs to be worked on. They tend to have a good exploration system, but it's oriented toward uh, resources, so we would usually call it a secondary exploration, not a primary exploration. But the skill of exploring is there, and then they tend not to be collaborative. But if you were to say to a dismissing person that collaboration in relationships is a better way to go, they already have the skills to explore that and discover that for themselves. So they can discover that actually a collaborative relationship system is better for them to be able to get what they want. Uh, and then, uh, you can also describe to them a way in which uh, having uh, secure attachments are, is a better way to go than um, auto-regulating and being uh, disconnected. And so uh, because they have the capacity to explore, they can begin to open up to the emotional experience of attachment. They can begin to see the value of having uh, supportive uh, relationships uh, and how that actually increases their own capacity to explore. And you can also persuade them pretty easily that, uh, that because they can be in a collaborative relationship, they don't need to spend all of their exploration energy procuring uh, resources to transact their relational needs. They can actually get into a collaborative situation and that that will free up energy for uh, primary exploration where the activity itself is meaningful. 
you can't actually do that with somebody who's preoccupied because they don't know how to explore so that if you were to say to them uh, collaborative relationships are a better way to go they don't have any way of verifying that that statement is true or not because they can't just go explore that uh, so what needs to happen first is uh, to begin to support the the capacity to explore so that they then can begin to validate in a direct way the experiences uh, that you're describing to them. Um, that's the main uh, issue there. The other thing is that uh, preoccupied people get are dependent on external regulators. Uh, and so uh, the movement away from uh, that dependency into autonomy uh, is uh, often quite frightening. And the skill set of, uh, of emotional regulation that allows the autonomy to explore is not there. And so the, the emotional regulation piece also has to accompany the capacity uh, to learn to explore. Without that, uh, they stay uh, connected to their uh, attachment figures. And also understand that if you're dependent on somebody else's um, emotional regulation, they also get something out of that and they may be reluctant to allow the preoccupied person the space to begin to learn the things that they need to learn to be autonomous as somebody who has a connection to a preoccupied person that has the constant proximity of the preoccupied person and the constant emotional regulation of the uh, preoccupied person might not think that their autonomy is a particularly good choice for them and might attempt to inhibit it. Is that making sense? Yes. So there's a lot of scaffolding that preoccupied people need in order to be able to move toward autonomy that uh, dismissing people already have. And what you're trying to persuade uh, uh, a uh, dismissing person is that they can rely on people, that, that they weren't wrong in their uh, analysis of the family system that they grew up in, that, that the caregivers were not reliable. Um, but that some people are reliable and that they can count on them. Uh, with disorganized people, the, the problem is not uh, uh, as simple because the fearfulness of disorganized people is so great that in order for them really to try any of this stuff, uh, you need to begin by uh, helping them manage the fearfulness. Um, one of the things that happens to disorganized people, which does happen to everybody, of course, but in a, in a more pro pronounced way, is that uh, relationships go so poorly for disorganized people that they begin to accumulate a disappointment um, about how relationships are going to go. And what you see quite often in that, that population is that um, 
by their mid-30s, the amount of disappointment that they've experienced in relationships is so great that they they don't want to risk having to have the that accumulated experience of disappointment again. And so they really withdraw from trying uh, to make relationships work. And so with disorganized people, you have to scaffold them so that they're willing to risk the disappointment of a relationship not working and, and uh, provide them with a different skill set or an education around a skill set so that they can try again uh, and uh, not uh, ultimately have the same failing experience that they've had so often. The mentalizing piece is important. Uh, the further away you get from security, of course, the, the lower the capacity to mentalize. Disorganized people don't mentalize very well, and so it's much harder for them to make all of these discernments, whereas a dismissing person also mentalizes much better. The dismissing person's mentalizing is usually quite close to what a secure person's mentalizing would be, so that you also don't have to train the mentalizing as much for them to be able to uh, choose differently. But uh, why don't we stop there? That seems like uh, enough of a, a description for one night, and then we can do some meditation. Um, I guess I'm, my, my, my thought is that we should do some mentalizing uh, practice. Um, this is an insight practice. Uh, we call it um, in investigating self-generated emotion. So what we're going to do is uh, begin by tracking thinking uh, and working mainly with auditory thinking tonight. Um, but we'll do a few minutes of um, um, breath counting just to settle the mind and then switch in. I, I don't think I need to give you any advanced instruction, it's pretty straightforward. So go ahead and take your meditation posture. So how did that go? Thank you for coming. Let's see. We have our first um, uh, level one class for uh, uh, that we're offering in Central European time starting uh, in a few weeks. Um, maybe you're a night owl and getting up at one in the morning and staying up until 10 in the morning. It sounds appealing to you. Um, but if it doesn't and you know some people that might be in Central European time who might be interested in it, you might not point them in our direction. Um, we're going to be doing uh, some, uh, uh, so, you know, level one series next year. And uh, also, I have a new book coming out, which is called Punch Outs, which you're going to, to launch in uh, January, I think. And so take a look at that. It's the, uh, the main title is uh, Punch Outs, and the subtitle is uh, Tajapanati in Pali. 
Tajapanati is a Pali word that means to uh, constantly reference, uh, uh, which is the Taja part, and Panati is conceptual reality. So constantly reference conceptual reality and compare it to ultimate reality to make sure that the, the reality that you're creating is an accurate representation of what's happening. So I like to think of it as a kind of rocking back and forth. This is what I'm sensing. This is what I've made it into. This is what I'm sensing. This is what I've made it, made it into. So it's a collection of photographs that are that are intended to activate that experience of this is what I'm seeing, what's actually there. This is what I've made it into, what's actually there. Um, so hopefully that will be useful. Um, uh, so I think that that's that pretty much covers the next little bit of the what's coming up. I'm not we haven't really uh, locked down the dates for the for what's coming next year, but uh, we will do that over the coming weeks. I do um, offer the teaching on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity, so I offer the teachings. But I do hope you'll support me and also support the work that MetaGroup is doing. And you can do that with a link on the website, Christian. Is the Asia trip still in the cards? It is, um, would be in February or uh, November, depending on what happens. Um, we, we weren't able to do it in Vietnam. The, the retreat center that we wanted to go to uh, had a lot of flooding in the, in the rainy season. And so they said that they wouldn't know whether they could host us until uh, the, you know, they see what's left <laughs> and what they can rebuild. That seems a little dicey to me. Uh, we do have a, an invitation from an abbot at one of the meditation centers in um, in uh, Thailand, uh, but I uh, it's a little short on time, and I'm. Uh, trying to see whether we can lock in the things that we need to so that uh, it would feel comfortable. But uh, probably eight, 18 days in February is what we're working on. And then uh, if it goes well, we, we might do the whole month of uh, November next year too. So it's a big monastery. It's one of the, the and the, the abbot, uh, has invited us to be their guests uh, at the monastery. And then uh, I also like to do a little bit of travel. So um, try to organize that. But uh, that's what uh, that's what I meant really by, well, well, we should have it locked down in a couple of weeks and I'll let you know. Right on. Thank you for coming. Thank you, George. Uh, we'll see you soon, I hope. Bye. Thank you, George. Thank you.